please join me in opening up to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Isaiah chapter 9. You know, if you wanted to put a, a single word on what the Old Testament is all about, on what the Lord is doing, what we see Him doing all the way through the Old Testament, you know, I think a good word to use would be the word hope, that the Old Testament is setting forth this promise of hope. And, you know, I think if we look all the way across the Old Testament and all the different books that are there, I, I, I think we probably would find that there's no book that, that does this more evidently or more prominently than the book of Isaiah. Uh, this is a book, as you read through Isaiah, that's set in a time period uh, for the nation of Israel of increasing hopelessness. You know, it describes a people who thought that they were okay as God's people, that they were secure, and they were living during a time when they were experiencing some amount of prosperity. And prosperity can also help us to, to think we're doing okay, uh, we are secure. But then we see, and this was really the beginning of it in uh, Isaiah's prophecy, we see that the enemies of God, and in this case it was the nation of Assyria, was given free reign over them to take them and to remove them from the land that they called home, to destroy much of their habitation there, and to take them many, many miles away in exile in a foreign land. You know, it was an upheaval that was beyond what I think any of us probably here have ever experienced this was a time period and a place of increasing hopelessness. Yet it was in the midst of that darkness that they received this promise of a great light and a wonderful hope. And we see this peer or peek through at different places in the book of Isaiah and certainly here in Isaiah chapter 9. And so that's going to be our focus this morning. This light or this hope Yet today, if we think about the world in which we live, I think it comes against a, a backdrop in our world of increasing hopelessness. If you were to just go out today and just begin talking to people that you meet uh, and begin to seek to understand something about their lives, what you would likely find in many cases, you would, you would see a lot of brokenness, uh, but also, as you probed a little further, you'd, you'd find out something about where their hope lies. And generally, therefore, I think you would find that people are either experiencing hopelessness today, or it's just a matter of time because of what they're basing their hope in. And you know, if we think about ourselves within the church, we're not exempt from that uh, because we are people who experience brokenness, uh, and we are people who are apt at times to place our hope too much in the things of this world. You know, we too can be very much affected by the, the, the spiritual darkness and the moral darkness of this world in which we live. And it's into this darkness 
that the Lord has come. He has entered in, literally, with a great light. And if you think about our day, what a needed message that is, a message of hope and of encouragement and of comfort. And that's really why this passage in Isaiah chapter 9 was given. Now, we're going to be looking at these what are probably very familiar words for most of us this morning, uh, Isaiah 9. I, I think if you go earlier in Isaiah 9, you might find those words not to be so familiar. We're going to read uh, beginning with verse 1, just so we get some of the context. Uh, but then as we get to verses 6 and 7, I think you will find those uh, very familiar. But I do want us to recognize, especially as we go back to chapter 8, which we won't read through this morning, but... The context for this was all of the trouble and the suffering that Israel was going to be experiencing at the hands of the Assyrians. And it was all a result of their sin, their, their rebellion against the Lord. And so what you see in, in chapter 8 is hopelessness through and through. And that's, I think, well summarized for us. So I'm not going to read further, but I'll just read the last verse of chapter 8. And this gives us a sense of it. And it says, and they, this people, will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Notice where they're looking, where their eyes are set, and they will look to the earth. Uh, And then right after that, we've got the Lord entering into this in Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, And so I'm going to begin Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. We'll read through verse 7, but recognize we're focusing upon verses 6 and 7. So this is is God's Word, Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that as we look at this promise, 
that we are able to know its fulfillment. And we are able to see it as truth. I pray, Lord, as we spend time in this passage this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and to understand that we might be encouraged, that we might be corrected where our hearts might need and our minds might need correcting, uh, but that we would also be comforted and brought to see with greater clarity uh, this one, this, this child who was born, this son who was given. Uh, we pray uh, for your help as we look at this glorious passage this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Very recently, I had a, a man tell me, this was a man who was in a very difficult spot at the time, and, and he had been for some time, but uh, he, he shared with me these words. He said, hope is everything. You know, at first when I heard those words, I was kind of taken aback, and I, and I thought, from, well, that's, that's going a little bit far, isn't it? But then as I thought a little bit more about it, I saw how insightful those words were and for him to be sharing them, uh, because he was a man who had known hope, but he had also known hopelessness. And so this was born out of his experience uh, in this world. And what, what he was really saying was that when you've got hope, you've got a reason to continue on. You've got purpose. You've got meaning. But not only that, but you have a true reason to, to, to go on and to live, to truly live, to thrive. It impacts everything that you do and that you think when you have hope. But here's a characteristic about hope that is worth recognizing and, and understanding for ourselves. Uh, number one, that is that it is widely available. It's widely offered. There are many people, uh, many situations that are offering each one of us hope on a regular basis. Secondly, we are often drawn to it because it's that which we need. That's how God has made us. He has made us with a need to experience and to have hope as we live our lives. And so we're going we're gonna to be drawn to those offerings of hope. Uh, thirdly, though, it can also be very deceptive. Now, I'll get to that in a moment. Here are some of the, the places in which we, we just commonly have hope offered to us. One of those is through our jobs or, or careers, which offer the promise of financial stability. Uh, and that's something that we look for in this world. Secondly, through all types of, of medicine, whether it's uh, medical plans, medical treatments of, of different kinds, those promise health to us and, and prevention of illness. Uh, there's hope offered to us often in, in the form of government uh, that promises to protect us and to provide for us and, and to give us freedom to live our lives as we might desire to live them. There's also hope offered through relationships, intimate relationships, including marriage, uh, that promises lives of, of comfort and of happiness. 
uh, other places through knowledge and intellectual achievement. Uh, that's one place of hope. Or through uh, healthy eating and, and working out for some can be another uh, source of hope. Uh, through the ability to travel far and wide, uh, again, uh, a place of, of hope and, and happiness for the heart. In uh, all of these, and there are so many more, we could go on and on, but hope is held out to us. And it is attractive in each of these cases because it promises to, uh, to, to provide for us uh, that which we desire. But it can also be deceptive. There's a, there's a danger here. There's a danger that with each of these, that these or one of them or two of them or, or more would become the hope would become that which is central to us, that which we come to depend upon. And if that happens, you might know what's also going to happen, that we're going to fear losing it if it becomes central. Why? Because that's what we have to hold on to. Remember that statement earlier, hope is everything. Therefore, if we're placing our hope in something and that's where our hope lies, and then that is threatened, then our whole lives can become about protecting that hope. Because in a, in a very real sense, hope is everything, and without it, uh, we may sense that we have nothing. And that's what we see leading up to this passage that we're looking at this morning. Uh, the people of Israel had placed their hope in things that were temporary, and now they fear, or even they, they dread, losing that which they place their hope in. So I'm going to read just a little bit out of, out of chapter 8 where it discusses this. This is back in chapter 8, verse 12. Uh, just before that, the, the Lord warns Isaiah and those people who are with him not to walk in the way of this people. And here's the reason. He says, "...do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy." And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But listen in the next verse to where he says that they must look to and where must they find their hope. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread. You know, there's, there is only one place, he's saying, that you will find true hope that is lasting hope and that will not disappoint because it's not temporary. Uh, and that is in the Lord. What were they doing? They were, if you go back a little bit further, they were looking for political stability of their own making. They were aligning themselves with particular nations, even corrupt nations, because they thought that would provide them with protection, but what, they, what were they not doing? They were not looking to the Lord, trusting in the Lord, relying upon Him for security. You know, we're apt to do the same sort of things, uh, to trust in any number of things. I, I enumerated some of those earlier, any number of things for our security, the things of this world, without even really realizing that we're doing it. But then what do we do? We become fearful of losing it, and we passionately seek to protect these sources. And if you think about it, this, this makes sense. 
because none of these temporary things that, that I mentioned earlier, none of them have a promise associated with them that says that they are going to, to last, that they are going to hold up under the storm. But rather, we know that every one of them will eventually come to an end, either sooner or later. They are temporary, and trusting in them leads to darkness. It only can. But, I invite you to look at, at chapter 9, verse 1, the very first word, but. It's that three-letter uh, word that signals a change in direction. But there is for us a hope that is everlasting. In verse 2, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And this is, this, this is it for the entire Old Testament. This is the promise that it looks forward to. A true and lasting hope. The hope that's held out to all people. And notice as we go through it that this hope has a very specific content to it because it's founded upon a person. Verse 6, for, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, this is true hope. This is true hope that's brought down to earth to where we are given to provide exactly what we need, true hope, both for this life and for the life that is to come. Now, this hope, unlike all of the, the temporary objects that we are so tempted to place our hope in, this hope will never fail us. We need never have fear of losing it. And so this passage through and through, it tells us to be encouraged and to take comfort because you are not without hope when your trust is here. You have an almighty king who brings to you the hope, the secure hope, the certain hope of salvation, a hope that can never fail. Now, as we, as we look at this passage of promise, I want us to think through what the Lord has done to make this hope our hope. And there are three things that I want to focus on. Uh, first of all, that He, through this, He identifies with us. Secondly, He solves our problem. And then finally, He, he brings us security. Notice all of these are very personal. They're exactly what we need and what we desire and what we look for in this world. First, He identifies with us. He solves our problem. Then He brings us security. So the first one, he identifies with us. And, and I would venture to say that this is the most amazing, uh, you might even say the most unexpected aspect of what God has done. Uh, he has come to us in weakness. And he has become one of us. Now there's a sense there, I think, in which we can't think enough about this. This is what we call the incarnation, God becoming flesh. This was a, a doctrine, I think, back when, when Jerry Jenkins was here, and it was something that Jerry said on a number of occasions that he felt like the church just didn't address enough. I remember him saying, I, I'm, I'm just amazed 
by this. This, 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 this is, out of, out of all of God's Word, this is what really uh, you know, floors me. I, I don't know what to, to think at times. And, and I think he's right. I think some, that we spend too little time on this. What we see here, and we see it in, in kind of the shadowy form here, but we see a demonstration of God's compassion for us, of His deep love for us. Uh, notice, as I read these words right at the beginning of uh, verse 6 there, notice the first person pronouns that are given. He says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. You know, in this context, this is speaking about a gift that has been given to those who are experiencing hopelessness in this world. A gift that is given to remove that hopelessness. It's speaking about a child by birth, a son. And then right after that, we get these four titles. It says, And His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know, as we as you look back over the history of the church in the first few centuries of the church, this is the primary area, uh, apart from the Trinity itself, but this is the primary area that caused so much struggle within the early church. There were some people that couldn't accept it. You know, they knew what we know, that there is this tremendous gap between God and who He is and who man is who we are. That God is, God is holy. He is morally perfect. And we are not. We are steeped in sin. That God is almighty. And we are not. We are weak. And as the early church looked at this Old Testament promise and at its clear fulfillment in the New Testament, there were some who could not accept this as it is stated. They, they said it's blasphemy somehow to, to see a connection between a child is born and that name, Mighty God. And so they did everything that they could to explain this away. And, and often in the process, and we see this worked out in the early church, they fell straight into heresy. But what they failed to recognize was that this is at the heart of God's provision for us, God's provision of that which we could not provide for ourselves. This is true love. This is self-sacrifice, that He, the Almighty God, the second person of the Trinity, stepped down from His place of glory, and He became one of us like us in every way, the Bible says, accepting without sin. And, and, and the fulfillment that we see here is unmistakable. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then we look in the context of who that's talking about. This is God Himself taking a place of humility, a place of weakness for us. That gets back to those pronouns. For, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. 
You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, he's engaged in telling believers how to live in light of this amazing gift that's been given to them. And he says this, and we almost can't not go to this passage. He says, have this mind among yourselves. Yeah, he's making a comparison. Have this mind among yourselves. Uh, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It, it was something that he didn't hang on to. He remained God, yet he didn't hang on to the glory that was his, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Those, those words, or that word right there, being born. But then it doesn't stop there, does it? He not only came to live for you and for me, but also He came to die for us. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You know, the, the words that must come to our mind there is amazing love. And you know how the song goes, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, didst die or shouldst die for me? This is the promise that was being held out by Isaiah the prophet. And this is the Savior that you and I are able to know today. If you think about it, you know, it's always in those, those glimpses of self-sacrifice in this, you know, in this world that we live in which everyone seems only out for themselves. But it's always in those glimpses of self-giving sacrifice that we come to recognize and be able to say, you know, that, that person, they really cared about me. They really loved me. I can see it in their sacrifice for me, you know, that's, that's something that uh, we'll often see, perhaps uh, more often than not, see in people's testimonies that somewhere in their testimony, there's a, a person who ste- stepped out in self-sacrifice in such a way, and I had that for myself. Uh, I remember a people, a couple who stepped out in self-sacrifice in such a way that I was able to look to that and say, no, this is different. It's different than the rest of the world. And it's something that, that I desire. Where does it come from? It comes from this. It comes from, for them, for that person, uh, they had experienced the love of Christ. And therefore, they began to to live it and to model it in their own lives. That kind of love. And it's true. This is the answer to hopelessness that we experience in this world. That there is one who stepped down from his glory, from his fame, and made himself nothing for our sake in order that we might have one who identifies with us one who knows us and therefore who is able to serve us. And that's exactly what he did. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And this has to bring to us 
true comfort and true hope. But not only that, not only did He step down and become a servant, but He did that in order to solve our problem. He takes upon Himself that which was ours, that which was going to condemn us. You know, what we see in, back in, back in our, our passage is that He, this, this child, this son, this king, that He made a way for the full and final removal of the cause of our hopelessness. You know, it's sort of like taking the sting out of a scorpion that might still be there, but it can't hurt you any longer. Out of His love for us, He removed that sting, and He solves, therefore, our problem. You know, we can see this in the nature of the kingdom in in, uh, verse 7. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, right here, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. You know, this is so central to the encouragement that's being given here that this kingdom will be upheld with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That somehow this king, who is both God and man, will ensure that those who belong to his kingdom have a right standing before him. Because that's what, that's what justice and righteousness uh, really are all about. In other words, uh, this people who are part of this kingdom will never need to fear condemnation. They'll never have a thought that they might be cast out because they're not good enough. Never a thought that they might be rejected because they have fallen short or because they don't measure up. This is a kingdom in which they cannot be cast out. They're fully accepted. They're fully loved from this time forth and forevermore. If you think about that, isn't that a a primary source of hopelessness in the world in which we live? Isn't that the the way the world works uh, you know, as, as you work with those uh, who are, are homeless, let's say, who are, or, who are in that spot in the world uh, that's, that's not desirable and that the world doesn't look favorably upon, you come to realize what they're used to again and again and again is rejection, is being passed over, being thrown out. But the picture of what's given here is the opposite of that. That's how the world works. But the way this kingdom works is that you will never be rejected once you're in this kingdom. You're fully accepted. And what does that do? That, that removes fear from them. That removes fear from us. Because we know that we'll, we'll always, forevermore, be accepted by this king. Because somehow, and we don't get the explanation of how here, but somehow this people have been justified once and for all in the eyes of the king. And isn't that what we long for? Now, even though it's not given here, let me just 
uh, go for a moment and, and explain uh, how this takes place. And I'll do it in Isaiah's words uh, out of Isaiah 53, a wonderful chapter for that, speaking about the same person, the same king, uh, where it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That's, That's love, and that's hope. Because He took our punishment to Himself. Now, here's one way of thinking about all of this. Imagine someone who has committed a heinous crime, and they know that they've broken the law. And they know that if they are found out, that they will be brought into court, that they will stand before the judge, before the magistrate, and they will be found guilty and they know that the punishment will be extreme. Now imagine, if if they're living their lives, right now they they haven't been found out, uh, but if they're living their lives under this sentence, think about what their lives are going to be like. They'll have this sense of guilt hanging over them at all times. An unending fear that the arm of the law is going to come, and it's going to find them out and that they will experience great punishment, a punishment that they know is rightfully theirs. In other words, they fear that justice will be served. And so what does their life consist of? Continuous anxiety, never having a true sense of peace. You know, in in a, a very real sense, this is a description of every one of us. We all are subject to God's law. We all have violated it. We've been going through the Ten Commandments. We have violated every one of those commandments again and again, and deep down inside, we know that we have. And even for those who shake their fist at God, they know, deep down inside, that there will be a reckoning, that they will be brought in to settle accounts that judgment day is a reality. And you know, that's what the Lord wants us to see, and He wants us to know. That was why the Lord took the Israelites and brought them from this place of of prosperity and, and place of comfort and security and brought them to a place of hopelessness because He wanted them to see and He wants us to see as well, the path to true hope and, and the path to true security. And, and this is in His grace that He does this. And so just like the, with the Israelites, sometimes He will take away those sources of temporary hope, no matter how tightly we're holding on to them. And He'll remove them from us. To what end? Because He wants us to turn to the one and the only one who is able to take care of our greatest need, our need for justice, our need for righteousness, our need to have our sins atoned for and removed from us. And until that time, we will have no true and lasting peace. But that's the encouragement that we get in this promise And therefore, that's the encouragement that we're able to have in the one who has fulfilled this promise. Uh, 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who gives us a freedom from condemnation and therefore a wonderful peace. Remember uh, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's once and for all for those who are looking to Him, for those who are trusting in Him. A, a wonderful peace, a, a peace that takes away the sting of the law so that there's no longer any fear of rejection because we're not living up to that standard. The standard has been taken care of for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, in in our passage, what is he called? He's called the Prince of Peace. And it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. True peace in this world as we live our lives doesn't mean that, that in other areas we won't have difficulties and troubles and even anxiety. But in this central area, this bedrock area, we will know that that has been taken care of. And we are secure in Him. You know, you think about it. uh, There's so much opportunity for anxiety in this world. And it's all around us. Uh, Yet in Christ, these are the words of of Jesus Himself out uh, out of John chapter 14. He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's, he's taking care of our greatest problem. So what has He done? He, he's come and He has identified with us. Secondly, He has taken care of, solved our greatest problem. Now all of this uh, pointing to Christ and His love for us, His acceptance of us. Then finally, He brings us true security. Now, up to this point, we've seen that through this promise of a king and of his kingdom, that hopelessness is transformed into true hope. And anyone who has experienced a a lack of hope knows uh, that true hope must involve a, a taking care of security, a sense of protection and uh, safety in this world. And that's something that, that ultimately the world cannot provide through any of the means that we've talked about. But in these verses, we're given the promise of a king, a king who does come in weakness, but whose kingdom will triumph over all rivals. We see this first in the titles that were given. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Notice He is God. Therefore, the kingdom that's being promised here is the kingdom of God. It's that which is, it, it comes to fulfillment in the New Testament. And what we would expect, therefore, is that it's a kingdom that we can count upon. It's a kingdom that is secure, that will supersede all other powers of this world. You know, uh, Daniel's prophecy, a number of uh, places throughout, Daniel speaks about this kingdom. And again, it's looking forward to the kingdom that will come. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 44 of Daniel, uh, 
It says, and in, in the days of those kings, it's speaking about earthly kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This is speaking about and pointing to the kingdom that the Lord Jesus Christ set up, and it is today the king of. There's great security in this kingdom. Now, one more thing that I'd like for us to understand about this kingdom. Again, we, we find this in verse 7 in our, in our passage. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. This is a kingdom that, that involves a particular lineage, a particular background for the king. It's the king, kingdom that if we go back to, to uh, 2 Samuel 7, it's the kingdom that was promised to a descendant of David. It would one day be fulfilled in his loins, the Bible says. And therefore, we know a great deal about this kingdom. But there's just one area of that kingdom that I'd like for us to focus on now before we close. And it's, it's something that Israel largely got wrong as they were expectantly awaiting this kingdom. And that was, they were looking for a physical kingdom, a kingdom of this world. But we learn that was part of the mystery that his kingdom would be a spiritual kingdom, not a kingdom of this world. Uh, Jesus says in, in John 18, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And so as, as we read this passage that we're looking at this morning, and as we look forward to the hope that it promises to us in this king and in his kingdom, which is to be found today in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've got to see it in the right way. We've got to understand what this security is that's offered by this kingdom. It's a security that supersedes the security of this world. You know, if somebody is looking only for, for a fix to the present, their present troubles and present ills in this world, earthly troubles, this is not the king. This is not ultimately the kingdom to address those troubles, even though it does address those troubles. But ultimately, Jesus said, in this world there will be tribulation. There will be trouble. There will be suffering. And he was speaking to those specifically who were in his kingdom but His kingdom and His rule is a spiritual kingdom. It's operating at the level of our deepest needs. Uh, it has physical effects, certainly, and it will ultimately un overcome all of the kingdoms of this world. But today, it tells us, it is for those whose ultimate citizenship, true citizenship, is in heaven. I'm going to read out of... Uh, Philippians chapter 3, 
Paul said, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. This is the nature of that kingdom in which we have ultimate security. It is a kingdom of salvation and of power. And it's a kingdom in which we can have a true and final and ultimate home. It's a kingdom that will never disappoint. What are we to do? We're to set our eyes on this king and on his kingdom, on the Lord Jesus Christ, and to trust him and his revelation of his kingdom in his word and to follow him step by step, day after day, using the means that he has given us His Word, His Holy Spirit, our gathering together as a people, prayer, the ability to commune with Him. And of that kingdom, what has He done? He, he has come and He has identified with us. He has come and lived amongst people and dwelt among us in the flesh. Why? So that He might solve our central problem, our main problem, our our sin, our lack of righteousness, so that He might bring us to Himself, that we might be fully cured and fully belong to Him, that we might not fear any more, that we might know this King. And He brings us security, that we might live with Him forever in a kingdom that overcomes all other kingdoms and ultimately that will cast the the kingdom of this world into utter destruction, that we can live freely together with our King. And so, out of our passage, again, those simple words right there at the beginning, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. A, a, A child, a son, that will scatter darkness and that will bring us into the light. This is a place of true hope and comfort and security. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that in this world uh, we are not left to the hopelessness of this world. And we recognize as we look around us that this world utterly, this world is ultimately headed toward hopelessness. But we thank you that you have given us a great hope and that we can know this hope who has been brought into this world and who has established a kingdom that we are able to be a part of and be a citizen of and ultimately find our home in a kingdom from which we will never be cast out. Uh, We pray that you will help us day in and day out to live as citizens of that kingdom, looking to you and finding our hope in you. Uh, We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.